Some people say, with plenty of science to back it up, that living near a nuclear power plant raises rates of childhood leukemia. And some people claim that living near high-voltage power lines causes an increase in childhood leukemia rates. So when you hear a genuine expert explain that above-ground nuclear explosions put radioactive particles into the atmosphere that are still floating around, and then he tells you... Tiny particles, microscopic particles, nanoparticles, were attracted by high-voltage power lines, so anyone living near the power lines would have been exposed to these particles. So there was the link, you see. The link was particles... Particles cause the child leukemia if they're radioactive particles. And so the whole thing tied together really well. Not only does it explain the power lines, but it also explains childhood leukemia near nuclear power stations because they also release particles. Well, when you hear something like that, and it makes sense where nothing else has, you begin to understand how big that seat is that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a terrific talk with Professor Chris Busby about his about-to-be-published scientific paper on a study examining the link between childhood leukemia, high-voltage power distribution lines, and atmospheric nuclear test fallout. And he's got a lot more than that to talk about. It is truly an explosive nuclear interview. Plus, we will have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness and More Honest Nuclear Information than Donald Trump Shared in Japan Just Today. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 7, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. It's deja vu all over again at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in northern New Mexico. Same work crew, same room, and same equipment involved in a plutonium handling mishap in late September, just one month after it happened in mid-August. During a repair, airborne plutonium was released, and three of the workers who were wearing respirators and anti-contamination clothing showed readings of trace plutonium, Doesn't take a lot, guys, just a speck. If it's a trace, you've got it. And one had radioactivity on their skin in the chest area. The Department of Agriculture's Forest Service has released a recommendation to lift former President Obama's uranium mining ban on the watershed of the Grand Canyon. 
Condemnation of the proposed move came from many directions, including from the Havasupai tribal chairman, Don E. Watahomeji, who said, This is a dangerous industry. They are now seeking new mines where this industry has yet to clean up the hundreds of existing mines all over the landscape that continue to damage our homes. On Long Island in New York, only 35 miles from Midtown Manhattan, one of Indian Point's two nuclear reactors shut down unexpectedly on Friday, November 3rd. The NRC's latest inspection report for Indian Point identified a recurring issue with O-rings used to seal off the plant's reactors and secure the lid of the reactor to the body of the reactor vessel, which is where nuclear fission occurs. The NRC says the O-ring issue has been the cause of eight water leaks since 2003 and urged Operator Energy to do more to prevent leaks in the future. Because, you know, bubble gum just doesn't work. At the shuttered Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant in Brattleboro, Vermont, radioactive water keeps seeping into the turbine building at a rate of 500 to 600 gallons a day. Since being discovered in 2015, more than 600,000 gallons have had to be disposed of by being shipped to a licensed disposal site in Tennessee. And in light of all that activity, isn't it interesting that the chairman of a panel charged with protecting workers at nuclear weapons facilities, as well as nearby communities, has told the White House he favors downsizing or abolishing the group, despite recent radiation and workplace safety problems that injured or endangered people at the sites it helps oversee. Republican appointee Sean Sullivan, a former Navy submarine officer, told the director of the Office of Management and Budget in a private letter that closing or shrinking the Defense Nuclear Facilities Safety Board that he chairs is consistent with President Trump's ambitions to cut the size of the federal workforce. Talk about penny wise and pound foolish. And now... Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's a week. Treasure Island. No, not the book by Robert Louis Stevenson. A real island that sits in the San Francisco Bay between mainland San Francisco and Oakland. At the height of World War II, the U.S. Navy took control of the island and later used the space to clean boats thought to be exposed to nuclear weapons testing in the Pacific. The decontamination site, and remember decontamination means distribution, caused radioactive materials including radium, plutonium, and cesium-137 to seep into the earth and contaminate the groundwater and the soil. As recently as 2007, experts found sites where radiation levels reached one million times what the Environmental Protection Agency or the California Department of Public Health allows for occupancy. The city did allow the formerly homeless and low-income residents to live in the area because, hey, who gives a... And then in 2011, the city of San Francisco approved a proposal to add 140,000 square feet of retail and 100,000 square feet of office space to the island over a 15-year period of time on top of a radioactive hot mess. 
Are they not paying attention to North St. Louis? And that's why City of San Francisco and Lenar developers, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Japan, a private think tank says the total cost of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, the triple meltdown, could reach 70 trillion yen, which is $626 billion, more than three times the government's latest estimates. The Japan Center for Economic Research said if costs rise, the public burden could greatly increase. The country's nuclear policy needs to be reviewed. Ya think? In South Africa, that country's treasury has said we can't afford nuclear power. No money has been allocated for the nuclear program over the next three years and two years ago concluded that it would not be wise to embark on the nuclear program until the country got a proper handle on its debt. What a concept. The United Nations Environment Program, UNEP, has vetoed participation by the World Nuclear Association in the two-day Sustainable Innovation Forum on the sidelines of the UN COP23 Climate Change Conference this month. UNEP is respected as the leading global environmental authority, implementing the environmental dimension of sustainable development within the United Nations system. World Nuclear News is already crying in their radioactive beer. Suck it up, princesses. The only thing sustainable about you is your radioactive toxic waste. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Is it too early to mention the holidays? Probably. So I will not use the C word, fa-la-la-la-la, but I will mention the T word, Thanksgiving, and how grateful I am for the support you, the listeners, have given to Nuclear Hot Seat through the year and through the years. If you're grateful for the kind of verifiable nuclear news you get here every week, how about letting us know with a donation? Any size helps, from a dollar to, congratulations, you just won the lottery. But seriously, without listener support, we would not be able to meet our monthly financial obligations. So be it a one-time donation in advance of America's Turkey Day, or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps to keep honest, verifiable nuclear information flowing out to you, the listeners. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. And if you'd like to make an inexpensive, no-fuss donation on a regular basis, we've set up a quick way for you to send the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice barista tip to us every month which we will not spend on a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. Just go to the website and click on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can afford, you're helping to combat the nuclear menace in all forms with solid, footnoted, reliably sourced information. That makes me deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Christopher Busby, Ph.D., everyone calls him Chris, is a British scientist and activist known for his work on the health effects of ionizing radiation. That's nuclear radiation. In addition to his academic appointments, he is the director of Green Audit 
an environmental consultancy agency, and scientific advisor to the low-level radiation campaign. Chris is well known for his expert testimony in court cases, including his representation of UK nuclear test veterans in a major court case. We spoke on Monday, November 6, 2017. Chris Busby, always a pleasure to have you with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Good to be here, Olivia. You recently published a study examining the link between childhood leukemia, high-voltage power distribution lines, and atmospheric nuclear test fallout. What led you to conduct this study, and what possible link is there between high-voltage power lines and atmospheric bomb test fallout? The reason that, that I looked into this is because I have always been interested in both uh, ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. So from about 1998, I was also interested in the fact that a number of studies had shown that childhood leukemia rates were high in children who lived near within 200 meters or 600 meters in one study of high voltage power lines. And there's a lot of physics associated with trying to explain all of this. I've been involved in that at the same time that I've been involved in the in the ionizing radiation. In fact, I've worked as an expert witness in a, in a number of high voltage power line cases, including one in, in, in Long Island, which I think we won in the end. So I've been interested in both these things. Now, in 2014, uh, a study was published, which was an extension of an earlier study that, that, that was done by some people called the Childhood Cancer Research Group in Oxford. And that was funded by the government, British government, and it cost an awful lot of money. And they looked at 9,000 children who lived near power lines and did a case control study with children who had leukemia who didn't live near power lines to see if there was a, an increased risk. And they found there was. This was done by Gerald Draper and the CCRG uh, outfit in Oxford, and that was published, I think, in 2006. And of course, it caused quite a large fuss because, you know, you must un obviously understand that people, you know, wanted to move away from power lines and there was a lot of concern about it and so forth. And in fact, at, at that time, I was asked to be on a, a government committee that was looking into this issue, although though when it came down to it, they deselected me at the last minute. But anyway, in 2014, a new study came out by the same outfit, Childhood Cancer Research Group. They published an extension of this study in which they increased the number of children from 9,000 to about 16,000, and they increased the time period to 2008. The previous study had stopped in 1995. So it was a much bigger study, 16,000 children. And what they found that overall there was no effect. So this was trumpeted loud, loudly in the, in, in the media that there was now no effect and obviously power lines didn't cause child leukemia everybody could be happy and we could forget about the whole issue but what this new study did is it cut the periods down by 10-year periods so so they looked at 1962 is when the whole thing started so they looked at 62 to 70 70 to 80 80 to 90 1990 to 2000 and 2000 to 2008. So they had all these different periods. And in each period, they had a, an increased risk of childhood leukemia, which was reducing. So in, in this new study, in, in the per first period, 1960 to 1970, you could say, there was a four and a half fold excess of childhood leukemia. Then in 1970 to 1980, it dropped about two times, and in 80 to 90, it dropped about 1.5. 90 to, to 2000, it was about 1 point naught, so there was no effect. And 2000 to 2008, it actually went down to 0.7. So this was something that they said couldn't possibly have occurred as a result of 
any physical process. And so they said it must be due to the kind of people who decide to live near power lines, which is obvious nonsense, you know. But what I noticed, of course, and I just thought, I thought, well, this is roughly in line with the doses from atmospheric test fallout, which were very high in 1962 to 70. And then they reduced in 70 to 80 and, and reduced in 80 to 90, because, of course, the atmospheric testing stopped in 1963. So I decided to have a look at statistically to line the two things up. And when I did, I found it was an extraordinary correlation between the two. That, in fact, the explanation for it all, which is quite easy to, to make, that there is something to do with the power lines that attracts the radioactivity from the fallout, and then the children get exposed to the radioactivity. And, in fact, in 1996, and I already knew this, or was it 97 or something, round about then, a professor at Bristol University called Dennis Henshaw had been doing some studies with power lines because he was interested in power lines. And what he showed was that tiny particles, microscopic particles, nanoparticles, were attracted by high-voltage power lines because of the corona ions that were produced by the high voltages. They, they charged up the particles and they got attracted to the power lines. So anyone living near the power lines would have been exposed to these particles. And, and Henshaw wrote a paper about this in the International Journal of Radiation Biology. So there was the link, you see. The link was particles. Particles cause the child leukemia if they're radioactive particles. And of course, the radioactivity of the particles was a function of the period of time that you were looking at. So the whole thing tied together really well. And so I wrote this paper about it. Because not only does it explain the power lines, but it also explains childhood leukemia near nuclear power stations, because they also release particles. If you look in the United Nations documents where they write down all the releases from nuclear sites, one of the main sets of releases, and these are the tables in Unskir, are releases of particles. Radioactive particles are released all the time from nuclear sites, from the stacks. Uranium particles, okay? And then the, another little piece of the puzzle is that the, the big leukemia cluster at Sellafield, the one that, that the British government set up a whole committee to look at, and that this committee still exists, and they deny, of course, they deny that there's any causation. They were also told in 1980 by a chap called Jakeman, who used to work for British Nuclear Fuels, that there were huge amounts of uranium particles released from the Sellafield site in the 50s and 60s. So all of this comes together. All of it comes together and gives the explanation, in my opinion, for the child leukemia clusters near nuclear sites and the power lines and, of course, Fallujah. So, so that's another thing where you've got radioactive particles. You've got uranium particles caused by depleted uranium weapons, and you've got huge increases in childhood leukemia. So the whole thing just falls into place. Where did you publish your report? And what has been the response in the scientific community or in the governmental community? Well, we've rather jumped the gun here because the paper's been accepted for publication and it was due to come out last week, but it hasn't hasn't come out yet. And they now tell me it's going to come out this week. So it's been published in a journal called Pediatric Dimensions. It's a journal published in England. And they also published another work by me about a month or two back on the issue of the radiation risk model and all that uratom stuff that I've been doing in Europe, you know, the, the challenge to the radiation risk model. So they published that as well. So they're publishing it and it should come out next week. We're going to look forward to that and also seeing what kind of pushback you get on it. But 
There is ongoing controversy within the UK medical community about the actual impact of low-dose radiation on leukemia rates in children. The British Committee on Medical Aspects of Radiation in the Environment, or COMER, continues to dismiss the possibility that radiation exposures can be the cause of the cancers because the doses were too low. And yet, you bring two components of this argument into question. The first has to do with dose itself. Yes. Well, this is basically my message to the planet. This is something that I figured out long ago and I've been writing about ever since, which is that the concept of absorbed dose, which was developed in order to understand the whole issue of radiation and health, is an averaging concept. So it's perfectly all right to consider dose for external radiation because you can average the effects of external radiation over the whole body. Now, we know, and, and it's been accepted for years now, that the target for radiation damage is the DNA in the cell, it's the nuclear DNA. And so if you have a dose of external radiation, and, and dose is just an energy density quantity, so in other words, it's like sitting in front of a fire and warming yourself, you would get a dose from the heat all over the whole body, and, and that, would, that could be written down as so many joules per kilogram of body. And in fact, the ionizing radiation dose, millisieverts, millijoules, all that stuff, and milligrays, and, and in America they say rads and rems and millirads and so forth, these are all exactly the same. They are energy density, they're energy per unit mass. But of course, this doesn't work for internal radiation because there are all sorts of things that happen with internal radiation that causes very, very high energy density or dose, if you like, at the DNA but no dose anywhere else. And one of the main uh, examples of this is uranium or strontium-90, which are chemical agents. You know, they're just chemicals, and they, and they have a very strong, very high chemical affinity for DNA. So if you take some uranium or if you take some strontium-90, then it goes to the DNA. It doesn't go to the rest of the body, so it produces a much higher effect, a much higher dose at the target that causes the biological effects. And the other thing that does this is particles. If you take a uranium particle or a plutonium particle or any, any particle that's radioactive, that's, that's actually a physical particle. It's about, let's say, one micrometer across um, or, or half a micrometer, that sort of thing. Those particles produce a very, very high energy density or dose close to the particle, but no energy density anywhere else. So if we were to go back to this idea of sitting in front of a fire and warming yourself, the equivalent would be to concentrate all of the warmth in one coal, if you like, so reach into the fire, pick out a coal and eat it. Now, obviously, that's not the same effect biologically as if you just sit and warm yourself in front of the fire. And yet the current radiation risk model is it models both of those events in exactly the same way. And, and that's why there's this huge mismatch between what Kamara, if you like, say about, about the dose being too low to cause the leukemia and what actually is the case in reality where these children or their mothers probably inhale these particles and the particles then get into the side of the body and they float around the place and they end up inside the little baby you know when it's in the womb and they cause an enormous amount of damage in in one part of the baby whereas if you if you diluted that over the whole of the mother it would hardly be even measurable in terms of a dose this is the essential problem with the way in which the current radiation model and and of course these komari people quantify and discuss the, the doses and, and the real world where actually the doses are very, very large in the babies and in the places where, in the DNA where, where the damage is caused.
The other relevant concern that you raise has to do with dismissing the cause of the leukemia as a genetic anomaly or genetic damage in utero. What's wrong with that argument? Well, no. I mean, what, what it is is that that is the case. The, the current risk model doesn't really have an explanation for what is observed. What we have seen in the last 50 years is we see countless examples of populations living near nuclear sites, children living in nuclear sites who have high levels of leukemia. And what they say is that the dose is too low. Now, first of all, there's this issue of the dose itself not being something which can be used properly to, to uh, assess biological damage. That, that's the first thing. But the second thing is that we now know as a result of Ch Chernobyl, about, and I'm talking now about real experiments, okay? So this is not about just sitting back in an armchair and saying, oh, the dose is too low. There are lots and lots of papers, 20 or 30 scientific papers that have emerged after 19, say 1995 or maybe 1990, that have looked at the genetic effects of the Chernobyl accident in Europe. This is in places like Egypt or Greece or Croatia or Turkey or Bulgaria. Uh, Finland, all, all over Europe, doctors, epidemiologists uh, have come along and they've looked at the rates of, of these congenital illnesses, whole range of them, uh, heart defects, brain defects, spina bifida, chromosome defects like Down syndrome, children who are born with no arms or limb reduction, so they've only got half of an arm, this sort of thing. All over Europe, after Chernobyl, these rates went up significantly. And yet the doses to these countries where these things happened were all tiny, as calculated by the by the current model, you know, where they dilute it all into into the tissue and, and they, they, they do this averaging and say the dose is less than one millisievert. Yet what we find when we actually go and look, and after all science is about it's about empirical knowledge. It's about looking and seeing looking out of the window and not and not deciding that something can't be true. If you see it, it must be true. So we've found in, in all of these cases that there are increases in congenital malformations and congenital diseases. Now, leukemia is certainly a genetic disease. It's certainly called, the, well, the childhood leukemia anyway, is a consequence of some sort of genetic damage in utero or possibly some sort of genetic damage to the germ cell before it becomes the baby. And what this shows is that these very small doses, and, and we don't have to now just worry about how, how it works, so it's, we're not talking about mechanism now, we're talking about epidemiology. And epidemiology shows that this actually exists, that the, these tiny, tiny doses cause these very, very big effects in congenital malformations. So if they do that, then they must also cause, or it's quite reasonable or, or plausible, to propose that they cause the same effects in producing childhood leukemia. So really the story is now that these tiny, tiny internal radiation doses are able to kill babies, they're able to cause childhood leukemia, and of course, in those babies that haven't died or the ones that aren't congenitally damaged in any way that you can see, of course, when they grow up, they're going to have a higher risk of all these genetic diseases, which is more or less every disease, certainly including cancer. And when you go and look, you find that that is the case. So you, you find that the children of the children who were born in 1963, 59 to 63, when there was the peak of the atmospheric fallout, there have been papers now that show that, that the children of those children who were born in the 1980s have a much higher risk of cancer when they're young than children who were born to parents 
who were themselves born before the weapons fallout. So there's an enormous amount of evidence that this is the case. The problem is now trying to persuade the scientific community, if you like, well, not the scientific community, but the scientists who work for the nuclear industry, who represent that, that old-fashioned way of looking at it all, trying to show them that, in fact, you know, what we've done is we've more or less poisoned the human race. And never mind about just the people, but also all the animals on the earth and everything. Always devastating and eye-opening to talk with you, Chris. Um, let's move this along because... The past year has seen increasing pressure on the radiation protection apparatus of European countries after publication of some of these studies in peer-reviewed literature, specifically dealing with congenital malformalities and genetic damage after Chernobyl. What did those studies show? It's roughly what I was just saying in support of the argument about leukemia, that all of these studies that have been done in Europe, more than 20 studies by all diff different groups of epidemiologists and doctors, have shown sharp increases in congenital diseases after Chernobyl. In fact, one study by a chap called Werther Lecky, who is an, a, a Polish doctor who is working in New York, was a very, very good study of children who were born in the radioactively contaminated region of the northern Ukraine, which was downstream of, uh, of the Pripyat marshes part of where, where the Chernobyl accident occurred. And he looked at, at uh, parents and children and compared a, a region of that Pripyat part of the Ukraine, which was highly contaminated, to one which was less contaminated, and showed significant increases in more or less every type of, of congenital anomaly that, that he studied. I think he studied about five different congenital anomalies, and they all showed statistically sig significant increases. But what he also did is he actually measured the doses. So he, he took the mothers and he put them inside. Uh, he, me he measured uh, the concentrations of uranium and, and strontium-90 well, strontium and cesium-137 inside them, not uranium. And he showed that there was a difference in these concentrations between the ones who had the deformed children and the, and the people who lived in the less contaminated areas. This is a very, very good study, very, very thorough and, and scientific. So there is really no doubt that this, these effects are, are occurring. So we've taken this evidence to various risk agencies in five or six different European states and said, look here, you know, you have got to now think about this and, and rejig all of the laws relating to radiation exposure. And by and large, most of them have said, no, we're not going to in one way or another. They've all had to respond to us because it's actually a legal requirement. But they've all said different things. They always try and pass the buck on to somebody else. So in France, they said, oh, it's nothing to do with us. It's to do with the people who cause the pollution, the industry. And in Sweden, they said, well, it's nothing to do with us. It's to do with the International Commission on Radiological Protection in Canada. And then in Ireland, it says they say it's nothing to do with us because we don't actually produce any radioactivity anyway. And in England, they said, well, we're not going to do anything about it anyway, so stuff you. So it's kind of gone on like this, you know, and various other places, they've had various different responses. But I now have taken this to the Swedish legal system now. So I was asked to go to Stockholm to provide a submission to the environmental court. So now it's out of the hands of the risk agencies and in the hands of the legal authorities. So I got this to Stockholm and they, they gave me about one and a half hours and an interpreter to stand up in court. And they were eight judges. And so I, I gave them the more or less what I've been telling you as a presentation. And it was all translated by this Russian translator. 
and then it was all recorded and so the judges heard it all and there was a there were a huge load of people there too this is in relation to their proposal to bury a load of high level nuclear waste in a facility at a place called Forsmark on the Baltic Sea which is totally insane because it's 500 meters under the Baltic Sea and if anything goes wrong it will completely contaminate the sea and all the fish will die and everybody will die around I mean we're talking about vast amounts of radioactivity here Anyway, so I, I gave my presentation there, and we've yet to see what the court makes of it. But we did that, and then I came to London, and I was supposed to make a presentation to the minister on behalf of the NGOs, the non-governmental organi anti-nuclear organizations in the United Kingdom. So this was quite a big deal, too. So we had this fancy place where, just by the Palace of Westminster, where, where the House of Commons is, and the sandwiches are really expensive and nice, and you know there was a green vase table, and and all these all these unidentified people there scribbling away on bits of paper, you know, and old Busby telling. And so Kamara came along to listen to this. They had to come along because the minister told them to come along. But the minister in the end wasn't even there. He said, "Oh, I can't come. I'm awfully sorry. You know, I had to go to somewhere else and so forth." Because th there's a total attempt to completely keep me out of, or keep this well, not me, but this evidence is being blanked wherever we put it there, all sorts of attempts being made to blank it. But but it's not really ultimately going to succeed because I think that, that the stuff is now so powerful and it's so obvious and it's been written down in all sorts of scientific arenas and journals and it's of course increasingly I'm able to get my stuff into the journals now. So I think ultimately it's going to knock them all for six. They're going to have to pack it in. You know, it's going to happen. It might take a while. Because the problem is, of course, you know, that this is, a, this is not only is it a change in a scientific paradigm, but it's also a change in a scientific paradigm where vast amounts of money and vast amounts of military power are at risk here. You know, so it's not just the, the original, if you like, Thomas Kuhnian analysis of the sociology of science. It's, it's that plus plus the money and power aspect, because nuclear is not, it's not as if it's like we had Newton and then Einstein came along and said, oh, well, this is all a load of rubbish, so we had to change it all. This is now, it's like Newton, but Einstein came along and he would have had to deal with Newton, assuming that Newton had the power of the military and the power of governments and the power of, of the nuclear industry behind him. And I think Einstein would never have got the theory of relativity through as quickly as he did if he had to deal with all of those people. One of the factors in the arguments against low-level radiation being an impact come from or are sourced from the epidemiological study of the Japanese A-bomb survivors. And yet, we previously had Bo Jacobs of the Hiroshima Peace Institute on Nuclear Hot Seat, episode number 321, and he explained that there were severe flaws in this study and that this is really the basis for setting levels in radiation exposure laws. Remind us of the problems of that study so we can understand how our expectations of what constitutes a damaging dose of radiation has been manipulated from the start. Yes, of course. Well, he's quite right. The most important thing which we discovered not that long ago, and in fact I wrote an article about this in the American journal Genetics, in 2016, is that they threw out their control group in 1973. What this study was, was they assembled a group of people 
1952. So that's already seven years after the, the bomb went off. And in that period, of course, lots of people who got sick as a result of radiation would have died. So the first thing that Alice Stewart pointed out is that this is not a normal population. It's a survivor population. So it's healthy people. It's the people who've survived living in Hiroshima for seven years. Now, you can imagine what that was like, you know. But you've got a radioactively contaminated town and it's all rubble and, and you know, not enough food and so forth. So to start off with, you haven't got a representative population. But that's not such a big deal. What they did was they then split those populations into people who were close to the explosion, people who were not so close to the explosion, people who were reasonably far away from the explosion, and people who weren't even in the city. Okay. Now, of course, the first three of those had different doses because we're talking external dose now. They calculated these doses. Of course, they couldn't measure them. So they did experiments in the Nevada desert with a similar bomb, and they put up dummies at different distances, and they measured the dose. So they said, well, we've got these three groups, you know, and we can work out the doses. Here they are, high dose, medium dose, low dose, and, of course, no dose. You see, zero dose for people who were called not in city. And there were two sets of those. There were the not-in-city early entrants and the not-in-city late entrants. But, but even the early entrants only came in three months after the bomb had gone off. Okay. Well, in 1973, this had been going on, you know, since 1950, and they were looking at all of these people according to the number of cancers that they had in the different dose groups. And by 1973, they started to discover that actually the low-dose group, never mind about the high-dose group, but the low-dose group had much higher cancer than the zero-dose group who were not in the city. And they said, this is impossible. Well, I don't know if they said this was impossible, but whether it was that they said this was impossible or whether they were just a bunch of crooks, which is also possible, at that point, they threw out their control group. Now, can you imagine? This is an epidemiological study. You have a control group of people who were never exposed you find that if you use that control group, everybody else has got too much cancer. And you think, oh, dear, whoopsie. Well, let's get rid of the control group. So they did. But they didn't make a big fuss about it. You have to really dig quite, quite closely into the literature to find out that this happened. In fact, I was told it by Pad Manaban, who's my mate from India, who studied all this stuff. And I couldn't believe it. Anyway, so I went and dug and dug and dug. And, and I couldn't. And all the stuff's in the British Museum has been thrown out. It's the British Museum. British Library hasn't even got it. So eventually I got it through some of my lawyers in America who got it from the Library of Congress. And I had this document which said we threw out the control group, right? There it is. It's by Moriyama and Kato, 1973, two Japanese people. So that's the main problem, see? The main problem is that it's nonsense. Now, what happened was that other people had figured this out, and there was a guy called Wanatabe, a Japanese guy, who, who said, well, all right, we haven't got this control group, but let's make up a control group. So what he did was he got all of their data, and he compared the cancer rates in their data with the cancer rates in the next prefecture. So not Hiroshima prefecture, but some other prefecture next door, okay? Prefectures like a county. And what he found is when he did that is that they all had enormously high levels of cancer, even the people who were like, you know, the lowest dose group, you see. And he published this in 2009. But of course, nobody took any notice of it. So I dug that out as well. So that does tell you not only that the entire Hiroshima study, the lifespan study is a load of nonsense. But if you actually use the data that they give you and use an independent control group from close by, but not exposed to the fallout, you find that they've got about 
two to three times the cancer that they should have. Now, what that means is that the entire risk model, even for external radiation, is complete and utter nonsense. So that's the first thing. There's another thing. When I was doing the, the big court case in London, the Royal Courts of Justice, the test veterans case, I brought over a colleague, a very old guy called Soji Sawada. He's an emeritus professor at Nagoya University. And he's also interested in this and he's been interested in it all his life because he actually got blown up at Hiroshima, see? He was there at age 12 and he had to leave his mother in the ruins and, and, and you know, big sad story about it all. But he's been quite interested ever since then. And what he did was very, very clever. He actually looked at the non-cancer effects. So he managed to get the data from the uh, lifespan study people in Hiroshima on hair falling out and diarrhea. So the two immediate effects of radiation is, is that your hair falls out and you get diarrhea. This is because the cells are get damaged. And of course, your hair cells and your gut cells are damaged by the radiation. And so you get diarrhea and you get epilation. So he looked at these by distance from the hypercenter, and he managed to work out how much dose you needed to get your hair to fall out, you see. It's all, it's all documented. And what he found is that people six kilometers, right, six kilometers from the hypercenter, all their hair was falling out, they were getting diarrhea. Now, they didn't get any dose at all, six kilometers from the hypercenter, the dose was zero. The actual dose from the, the immediate flash, you know, woof, like that, the gamma dose was zero. In fact, the gamma dose is zero three kilometers from the hypercenter. So all those people, three kilometers, four kilometers, five kilometers, six kilometers, they were getting radiation dose equivalent to about 700 millisieverts. That's quite a big dose. But it was not coming from the immediate bomb gamma dose. It was coming from something else. And what he figured out is it was coming from the black rain. It was coming from the fallout. See? And the black rain was mostly uranium. So in other words, what he showed was that all of the groups, the high dose group, medium, low dose, everybody, were all getting most of the effect was coming from the fallout. Because it's internal radiation, you see, like this is what I've been saying about the, and again, it's uranium particles, like the uranium particles at Sellafield, like the uranium particles in Fallujah, like the uranium particles coming out of the stacks of all of the nuclear power stations. That's the problem. And that's what he showed. So those are basically the, the reasons why the Hiroshima studies are worthless, absolutely worthless. So if they're worthless, then what we have to do is to go and look at other studies that can be done to, to tell us how dangerous this stuff is. And of course, the obvious place to look is Chernobyl. And when you look in Chernobyl, you find it's very, very dangerous. You have said, and you made reference earlier in this discussion, that there's been a revolution in science due to the internet and how it affects the nature of scientific knowledge in the last five years. This is something I believe that Kuhn writes about, the nature of scientific belief and how it changes. Explain what you mean by that. Well, in 1962, there was a revolutionary book written called The Nature of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, who was a, a socio well, he was a scientist, but he more or less started the field of social studies of science. So in other words, he came along and looked at scientists as if he was an anthropologist and as if they were a tribe. And of course, they are in a way. So the scientists in, in the last century have, have increasingly become a sort of tribe. You know, it's a rather arrogant tribe of men, mostly, who think that they're right because they can do mathematics. I mean, that's what it boils down to. If I have one project in the world, it's to knock these people off their horses. That, I mean, that's much more important to me than all of this stuff, the science that I do. 
Because I'm not really that sort of scientist. I, I use science like somebody uses a calculator. So if I have to do it, and I don't like it, but if I have to do it, I take it out of my pocket and I sort of go clickety-clickety-click and I get the answer and I quickly put it away and go and play some music on my violin or or write a song or, or tell somebody she's beautiful or whatever, you know? I absolutely hate all that stuff. But these men who do all of this stuff, they constitute what might be called the scientific community. Now, what Kuhn showed is that actually the way in which science changes its view of the world, if you like, the belief system that there is, and this is not only the case with science, of course, it's the case with everything, but particularly he was looking at scientists, because scientists somehow think that they know what's right because they're scientists. And they will look down their nose at you and say, well, this is sci I'm a scientist, you know, in other words, you're wrong and I'm right. What he showed was that, that, that science was no different from anything else and that there was a kind of current belief black box that was based on all of the bits and pieces that you put into the black box and that gave you the answer in any particular situation. And, of course, that is a way in which it does work. But the problem is it's not always right, you see. And if you go back through history, which is what he did, he went right back to Aristotle and came back forward through history, looking at the way in which scientists saw the world and then somebody came along and said no excuse me that's not right and they all had to change you see but that change wasn't simple he was interested in how that came about now before Kuhn what they thought was that scientists made little incremental advances they said oh this isn't right oh we can do this oh that's not right we can do that and so they crept, science sort of crept along in some kind of empirical way but he said, no, it goes forward in revolutions. Somebody comes along and he says, look, this is all a load of rubbish because of blah. What he also said is that when someone does come along and say that, they usually ignore him and they won't listen to the evidence and they won't even look at the evidence. I, because I was going to talk about this, I've got his book here. It's called Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I'll just read you one line. It says on page five, he says, He's talking about normal science. So normal science is the way in which we see the world at any moment in time. Okay? This, is, this is, you like, the scientific community. He says, normal science, for example, often suppresses fundamental novelties because they are necessarily subversive of its basic commitments. That's a very important sentence. What he's saying there is what I've noticed, what I've found, is that if you come along with a piece of evidence that doesn't fit their project, their view of the world... They don't argue with you about it. They just ignore you. They don't even consider it. So when we went into court with all of this stuff in the Royal Courts of Justice, the Ministry of Defence defence people, they came along and they just said what they wanted to say. They didn't address any of the things that, that, that we were saying. And when I was in, this, in Sweden and I came out with a whole load of this stuff, more or less what I've told you, and they had to respond in front of the judges. So they came along and they responded and they didn't even mention any of the things I'd said. So it wasn't like they said, oh, well, Busby says this, but it's wrong because of that. They just didn't even go there. OK, so it just wasn't it was blanked, which is what Kuhn says. He says that the way in which they deal with it is by ignoring it totally. Now, this brings us to the Internet. Prior to about 2010, the way that scientific knowledge moved forward is you published in a peer review journal. And so that meant that you had to write your paper and you sent it to the peer review journal and they sent it to referees and the referees said, oh, well, I don't think this is right or I do think this is right or it should be published or it shouldn't be published. Now, the problem is that all of this stuff that I've been doing since 1990 is stuff that the referees always refused to concede. They just threw it out. They just, and very often 
the journal editor himself no, never even sent it to the referees. He just say, well, you know, we, we're not going to publish this. That's it. So, of course, none of this new evidence gets into the literature because of that. But with the development of the Internet, and particularly since 2010, there have been more and more journals appearing online. Because, of course, originally they would have to print a journal. So you sent them your article and it would go into print and it would end up in the library and the library would subscribe to that journal. And, and then, you know, scientists would have to go to the library, physically pick this thing up and open it up and look at it, you see. But all that's disappeared. The Internet's just wiped all of that out. Now, everything is online now. All of the journals are online and there are an increasing number of journals who have got referees who are not tied into the West, you see. So they're not part of the Western scientific system. They're people from India, people from China, people from North Africa, people from Croatia or, or, or Russia. You know, clever people, clever, proper, real scientists who, who work in universities and who study this stuff. But they don't have this kind of need to support an unsafe way of seeing the world. They're open. They're open. So it's increasingly since about 20, 2006, if I write a, a journal article, you know, and so long as it's right, so long as it doesn't make any stupid errors and it actually reports stuff that's real and it says and it does all the stuff that you should do in a scientific paper, then they will let it through. They say, well, no, we're not quite understand this and your table one should be changed to that and we want to know more about the other. And then, of course, you know, you write whatever it is they've asked you to write and then it goes published. And then it gets published. So what this has done is it's completely bowled the scientific establishment and the control of knowledge by the Western scientists. And by them, I'm talking about the people on the horses that I want to knock off their horses, those men who support the nuclear industry. They just don't know what to do with themselves. You know, they're just they're just completely outflanked, completely outflanked. And the other thing is, of course, people read this stuff, you know, because where do we go to find something now? We go to Wikipedia, bam, you know. Well, I know most of that's nonsense, but the point is people go to the Internet and they put in keywords and the keywords take them to a particular journal. And if someone wants to say childhood leukemia and power lines, what's going to happen is they're going to go shoof, straight to my paper, bam, just like that. And they'll look at it and they'll think, well, well, I mean, if they're honest, they'll think, blimey. This is the answer. I mean, of course they will, because it is the answer. Chris Busby, it is always a pleasure and an honor to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. And thank you so much for joining us once again this week. Thank you, Libby, for having me. Thank you. British scientist and activist Chris Busby. You can learn more about Chris and his work on his website, greenaudit.org. And, of course, we will link to it on the website. Activist shout-out. Woo-hoo! About a month ago, Nuclear Hot Seat began to be carried through the Pacifica Audio Port Network. That's their internal distribution arm, offering privately produced programming to over 250 broadcast stations around the United States and Canada. As of last week... Three, count them, three stations have already signed up and are carrying Nuclear Hot Seat over the airwaves. Welcome, welcome, welcome to KODX in Seattle, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, and KCEI in Red River, New Mexico. You're joining with broadcast stations WGRN-FM in Columbus, Ohio, and KEPW in Eugene, Oregon, which have already been carrying the show. Now, if you, the listener, are in any of these markets, 
you now have more than one way to get nuclear hot seat. Be sure to tell your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, the people next to you in line at the grocery store. Tell them all about it. And let the station know that you notice that they're carrying the show and that you care about it. If you live in an area with a community broadcast station that's part of the Pacifica network, or even not, and they're looking for programs, let them know about Nuclear Hot Seat, because we are available. And the further the show gets out there, the more powerful our voice, and the more people will have the opportunity to learn the truth about all things nuclear from a different perspective. Here's the week's final thought. I recently learned that an activist I have come to respect and trust tremendously, someone I've interviewed more than once for this show, is hanging up her spurs and in the process of helping to shut down the group she's been involved with for almost two decades. As she recently wrote, we are all too old and many of us ill. She wrote a further explanation, but that's private. She will still make herself available to comment and discuss issues when relevant, but the burden of running a group and the daily, weekly, monthly commitment of it all has become too much. I can relate. This is exhausting work to do, and at best, it's difficult information. If you think not, Try bringing it up around the table at your next family gathering and see where the conversation goes. Probably not very far. For those of us who commit ourselves to action, it can easily become so wearying that burnout feels just a nanoparticle away. Now don't worry. I am not quitting in the foreseeable future. But I get tired, as so many people do, and I know that we need more. We need more people. We need younger people. A new generation of activists capable of taking to the streets, building protests into the thousands, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, taking action, carrying us forward as far as we can go. But we've got to persuade them of the critical nature of the work we're doing and our need for their involvement. Now, we know the facts. We're lousy with facts and information. Why is nobody listening? I've been talking with business trainers I know and trust, those individuals who work with entrepreneurs and business owners, to help them make their message more persuasive so that people listen to them, buy in, and say, yes, tell me more. We're not talking about hyped-up used car salesman types, but specialists I've found who have helped me build my message and my messaging and taught me that sales means service and fulfilling people's needs, sometimes by first convincing them that they have those needs. So I'm going to be incorporating some of these individuals on future episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat or maybe even separate conference calls not because they have anything to say about nuclear, but because they can teach us better ways to say what we have to say about nuclear. This movement has tons of information, but we've got to get better about delivering it. Because if we can get people to really listen to what we have to say, 
They'll understand what's at stake and be much more likely to take action. And that will boost our numbers and, most likely, get us younger members. And that will make us more optimistic about the work, about the future, no matter our age. And then maybe we won't burn out or tire out or get ill and feel our only option is to hang up the spurs. I know I'm not ready to get off this horse yet. I don't think you are either. So let's do some strategizing and prep ourselves for 2018 and beyond. I'll have more on this during next week's show. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 7, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and Sean Arclight, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, defenseone.com, Bob Alvarez, laboratoryequipment.com, ecowatch.com, lohud.com, recorder.com, publicintegrity.org, businessinsider.com, alexanderhiggins.com, japantimes.co.jp, inews.co.uk, theguardian.com, environmentalprogress.org, newsweek, commondreams.org, New York Times, rapidcityjournal.com, the karmically damaged cubicle slaves grinding out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to all of you marvelous nuclear hot seat listeners and followers literally around the world. You show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of real truth and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. If you haven't yet, be sure to stop by, click like, follow us, post, and share. Many thanks this week to Sean McGee for helping to set up the interview with Chris Busby. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a suggestion of a story lead, a hot tip, or someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. My name, name of show, website URL. That's in case Counterpunch is listening. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues from around the world, take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing I or anyone involved with the anti-nuclear movement wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There. You have all just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all, all, in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. 
nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.